3: Hello and welcome to the History Extra podcast from BBC History Magazine, Britain's best-selling history magazine. I'm Rob Attar, the magazine's editor. The guest on today's episode is the biblical scholar John Barton, whose A History of the Bible, The Book and Its Faiths is among the titles shortlisted for this year's Wolfson History Prize. He spoke to our world history editor, Matt Elton, about the origins and composition of the Bible and how it's often misunderstood in the 21st century.
0: So the first question really, I suppose, is um, as a layperson, your book is on what to me seems to be an incredibly daunting subject. Can you just explain what the scope of the book is and I suppose perhaps what the challenges you faced while you were writing it?
4: Yes. Well, the scope is that it's um, an attempt to tell the story of the Bible, from how it first got written, how the books in it first got written and then through how they were collected, how they became regarded as somehow authoritative and then how they've been interpreted down the ages and how they've been translated from the original languages. So it's enormously large, brief and in a way um, an impossible one. So the challenge was how to compress that into as little as 600 and odd pages, which is still quite a substantial book. Um, but um in a way what I decided to do was to tell the reader sort of everything I know about the Bible, um, in a in a condensed and I hope accessible form. Um mm. and that that was the that was the the way of going about it. So I, I mm. thought back to all the things I'd said in lectures over the years and all the things I've talked about when I've given talks to parish groups and that kind of thing. And try and condense that into some kind of accessible whole.
0: Mm. And as you say, it's a fascinating, huge, broad subject. Um, to head back to its very earliest days, I suppose, when were the books of the Old Testament written? Do we know?
4: Well, we don't know. It's all everything is conjecture, really. Um, we only know for sure that they were written by the time we get to about the third century BC, when we know it was. They were translated into Greek, so they must have existed by then. But in fact most people think there are some texts in the Old Testament, mainly songs and hymns, which might go back into the 10th or even 11th centuries BC, but the main body of material really only starts to get written in the 8th and 7th centuries. So roughly in the time that most classicists reckon is the time of Homer. We're getting um, books written in Hebrew. Um, and that would include uh, some of the material in the five books of Moses, the first five books of the Bible, and some of the material in the books of Samuel and Kings, and some of the prophets like Isaiah and Amos. So the 8th century is about the beginning, and the last book in the Old Testament is Daniel, which is definitely from the 2nd century BC. So it's a period of six or seven centuries in which... um, the material actually gets written. So there's nothing that goes back into the first millennium BC, shall we say.
0: What does that um, that uh, broad range of time and also the specific sort of periods you've mentioned there, what does that tell us about, uh, or does it tell us anything about the composition of those sections of the Bible?
4: Um, well, most of them must have been put together from earlier materials, probably, in the sense of oral memories or earlier documents. And the Book of Kings, for example, often tells us the rest of this material is written in the Book of the Acts of the Kings of Israel. So there clearly were written documents that these people could refer to. Um, That's how how they got their their material. There are books in the Old Testament which are simply made up, um, like the Book of Jonah or the Book of Esther, which are little novels in effect. Um, though they may also rest on older oral memories or oral materials. But in general, um, they're they're not written from scratch. They're written from pre-existing written or oral materials.
0: Hmm. I was struck by the point you make in the book, which is that in some ways the uh, term the Old Testament is kind of problematic. How is that the case? Well, it's... In modern times, some
4: people have said, some Jews and some Christians also have said, that to call it the Old Testament implies that it's been superseded by the New Testament. You know, this is old and therefore superannuated. And so there have been various attempts to find ways of avoiding using the term, of which the main one is to call it the Hebrew Bible or the Hebrew Scriptures. And Hebrew Bible has probably established itself as the main term that is used in the academic world. within the church and among people who aren't biblical scholars the term Old Testament is still normal and in the book I tend to use it quite a bit thinking that it isn't necessarily a pejorative term but just the standard term for these books that people will recognize but to be more careful about it one needs to say the Hebrew Bible. The problem about the term the Hebrew Bible is that some of the Hebrew Bible is actually in Aramaic not in Hebrew at all um and um the Bible for the early Christians was the Hebrew Bible translated into Greek. So in a sense, that's also got its misleading aspects. But it does avoid the suggestion that the old, the, the, these Old Testament books, and therefore perhaps by implication Judaism, which relies on them, is somehow passé and superseded by Christianity. And That's why we tend to use the term Hebrew Bible now.
0: To situate, I suppose, uh, this section of the Bible even more fully into its historical context, what understanding of the history of the Near East in ancient times do you think we need to have to make sense of its contents and its origins?
4: I think we need to understand how far Israel in in the land, in what they regarded as the promised land, is a tiny nation uh, and is not geopolitically at all important. The Old Testament, of course, is written as though it's, of course, written from an Israel standpoint, and therefore, you know, like a history of England written by, by an Englishman, uh, it tends to bulk large and to be the most important nation on earth. But from the point of view of the uh, realities of the ancient world, the main powers are in Mesopotamia, the Assyrians, and then the Babylonians, and in Egypt, and Israel is just uh, a little country between the two. Which is important only because people want to have it, to provide good trade routes and that kind of thing, but it's not politically important in the in the slightest. And I think it's getting that in one's head is quite significant. Also, of course, how small Israel is. I mean, the, the classic comparison we always use is that in in Britain is that it's the size, same size as Wales, um, and in America that it's the same size as Maine. Um, which gives you an impression that it's a very small place. Mm. And by the time of the Jewish exile in the seventh century B.C. in the sixth uh, century B.C., um, all that le- has been left by then Judah is about the size of um, probably probably Yorkshire. Um, so that, you know it, it is a tiny place, and yet it produced this amazing body of literature which still fascinates people today, which I think mm. is extraordinary.
0: How, how can we explain that seeming disparity?
4: Well, it's very difficult. Um, I mean, obviously, the, the traditional explanation is in terms of divine inspiration, that God used this tiny nation to produce these great ideas. Um, if you want a, a secular explanation of it, which is what I tend to favour in the book, it is just an extraordinary thing, and it, it, there is no real explanation. Um something to do with religion um, because um, it's the tenacity of the belief in the one God which sustains these people over a long period and means that whereas other nations that fell to conquerors lost their religious beliefs or assimilated Israel seems somehow amazingly to have held on to its beliefs so it, it says that it's our own God that's caused us to be exiled Um, And so we can redevelop our ideas about that God after the exile ends without a a sense of having been abandoned.
0: Mm. Something else that struck me, and you've mentioned a couple of uh, these things, poems and stories uh, before. I didn't realise quite how many different forms uh, of, of different kinds of content this section of the Bible included.
4: No, I think that's a general perception. I think people think of the Old Testament perhaps in terms of stories or (laughs) histories. Largely, they think of them as very bloody stories, which is an exaggeration but still has some truth in it. Um, And they think also of it in terms of laws, like the Ten Commandments. But I think people don't have a general perception how many psalms there are in it, uh, hymns and and poems, uh, narratives that are not historical narratives at all, and detailed provisions for how worship is to be conducted Um, and of course prophecy which is a very varied form that includes predictions of the future but also moral denunciations and condemnations of contemporary life and so on and that that whole variety i think is not present to people's mind it's partly because the bible presents itself to us as a single volume Uh, And if you start to study it, you have to break it down into its different components, and then you see just how varied it is and how many different kinds of writing there are in it. And, of course, obviously, one doesn't ask the same questions of all different sorts of writing. So if a thing is a novel, you don't ask historical questions about it, for example, and a poem, you don't ask what it tells us to do, and so on.
0: Does the fact that um, there are many different sorts of forms here imply that it was aimed at many different sorts of audiences?
4: I think that's right. Um, I mean, we don't. If you take the history writing, which makes up an enormous part of the Old Testament, it isn't clear who that was intended for. In the culture we're talking about, in which not many people were literate, it presumably would have been assimilated by people by hearing it read aloud. Um but, in what context that would have been we don't know, possibly a liturgical one, uh, where it was read in the course of worship, but we're not sure in that sense who it's who it's aimed at. The psalms are clearly aimed at people worshipping in the temple. I think that's fairly obvious that they're they're there to be used in worship for the most part anyway. The laws are perhaps intended mainly for priests who actually have to uh implement them and uh, offer judges who have to rule on difficult cases and so on. So it's a range of different audiences for the different parts of the book.
0: Hmm. And does the fact that we need to see all of this through the prism of both, I suppose, diversity and complexity really change how we view this whole whole singular book, I suppose?
4: Well, I think it does. Um, It makes it very hard to think of it as just a kind of divine revelation, I mean, the, the archetypal book of that kind is the, is the Qur'an. And the Old Testament is very unlike the Qur'an. It has a much wider range of types of literature. It's much longer. And very few of those bits of literature make a claim to be revelations from God, in fact. Um, there's only a very few passages, like the Ten Commandments, which are said to be given by God. Most of it seems to be consciously from human authors, reflecting on God, and, and relation of God to Israel and the world, but nevertheless human writers.
0: You mentioned um, the Ten Commandments. Um, how do you... I mean, which is one of the most well-known, I suppose, famous uh, sections of this in 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 the secular world. How do you think we need to re-understand the origins and meanings of, of, of that particularly?
4: Well, one thing uh, which one immediately notices is that people say this is the law code of a wandering desert tribe. That's what one normally hears, and that's the impression that the Bible gives, that it was all these were given at Mount Sinai in the wilderness. If you actually look at the Ten Commandments you find that they imply settled agrarian life. So you mustn't covet your neighbor's ox or ass, for example, um, which um, wouldn't have been roaming around in, the, in, in 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 the desert under Moses. And you mustn't cover your neighbour's house either. So you have a house, so that a first impression, on reading them carefully, is that they must reflect a time after Israel had settled in the Promised Land, not not the early times of Moses. So they're probably most people think not much earlier than the eighth century. So which is the eighth century BC is a long time ago to us, but in terms of biblical chronology, it's quite late in that sense. Um, so that's one, one thing. Um, the other thing is that um, the Ten Commandments don't in fact cover all possible aspects of human life, as people sometimes think they do. Um, they are a selection of particularly salient points. Um, and uh, one of them, for example, you know, honouring and observing the Sabbath, is specific to ancient Israel. Others, like not committing murder, adultery or theft, are universal in the ancient world, and all the cultures of the ancient Near East have laws about those things. So the thing is, again, even internally, much more varied and comes probably from a range of different backgrounds, rather than being this monolithic document given by God on Mount Sinai.
0: Do you think this complicates um, the tendency among some faith groups to want to use this as a direct set of lessons that can be applied to other societies and other cultures in different times in history?
4: Well, I think it does. I mean, this makes you, studying the Bible in this kind of way, makes you a bit relativistic. It doesn't mean that you necessarily think that um, this is all over and done with and in the past and we can ignore it. But it does make you aware how much it depends on the particular culture in which it all developed. And if you were to apply that to the modern world, you have to find analogies rather than thinking of it in terms of direct commands, I think.
0: Moving um, to the New Testament, how does this fit in chronologically? What, what period of time does this um, cover in terms of its origins and the things it, it talks about?
4: Well, the earliest books in the New Testament are the Epistles of St Paul um, and the first of them, which is probably 1 Thessalonians or or else Galatians, comes from the 50s AD, so about 20 years after the crucifixion of Jesus. Um, and then Paul develops further letters through the fifties and perhaps into the sixties. The Gospels come from the seventies and onwards, so Mark, which is probably the earliest gospel, comes probably from the late seventies. Matthew and Luke from a bit later, and John from not far before the turn of the century so the and then there are other books in the old test uh, books in the New Testament that um might be even a bit later still, like some of the uh, epistles of other characters like James and Peter and John uh, which are not by those people uh, by the apostles of, the, of, those, of that, those names but by later writers writing in their name and then we might be doing dealing with material that actually goes just into the second century but hardly later than that so on the whole the, the New Testament comes from a period of about 50 or 60 years um, so it's a far less t- of a time span than the Old Testament covers.
0: Does does this imply um, that it was more of a concentrated effort to create a body of work?
4: I think it does rather. I mean, Paul is writing his letters to deal with specific situations that have arisen in the churches he founded in general. And then in Romans, he writes to a church he hadn't founded where he wants to tell them the essence of the faith in, in great detail. And people often say he wasn't writing scripture, and that's true, he was writing letters. But nevertheless, of course, a letter in that culture has more weight than it does in modern culture. Or perhaps we're getting back to a letter having considerable weight now in the the world of emails and WhatsApp and so on. Um, But he clearly intended the letters to be read and reread, And that means that before long they do take on a kind of scriptural flavour to them. And you find at the beginning of the second century, Clement of Rome, who's an early bishop of Rome, writing to the church in Corinth and quoting St Paul's first letter to the Corinthians as having authority for them. So by then, First Corinthians is well on its way to being a kind of scriptural book on a par with the Old Testament. And in fact, early Christian writers in the second century often quote the New Testament more than they do the Old, even though, strictly speaking, the Old Testament was scripture in the New Testament wasn't yet. But nevertheless, they regarded it as extremely authoritative and important. So that, mm. that's how it, how it works.
0: Mm. And how much of a challenge was it for these writers to try to fit this new material into the existing kind of canon? A,
4: a, a big challenge. Um, I mean, you see this going on all the time in Paul when he's trying to negotiate the relationship of the new Christian movement to Judaism. And he wants to say the Jewish scriptures remain authoritative for us. Uh, in them, God is revealed. Uh, nevertheless, something brand new has happened in Jesus, which doesn't totally fit within the old scriptures. And so he moves and seems to me to sort of oscillate between saying, yes, it's all still absolute an absolute authority and saying some of it's actually been superseded by Christ. So, uh, And that uneasy tension characterises Christianity from the beginning and I would say continues to do through to throughout the centuries, and in a way still does when one thinks of the relations of Christianity and Judaism today. It's a tense, rather fraught relationship always.
3: Still to come on the History Extra podcast.
4: I say cultured just because no one who reads a, a 600 and odd page book is, you know, a very simple reader. But I would like such people to
1: And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed.
2: Apple Card is the perfect cashback rewards credit card. Earn up to 3% daily cashback on every purchase every day. Then grow it at 4.50% annual percentage yield when you open a savings account with Apple Card. Visit apple.co forward slash card calculator to see how much you can earn. Apple Card subject to credit approval. Savings available to Apple Card owners subject to eligibility. Savings accounts provided by Goldman Sachs Bank USA, member FDIC. Terms apply.
1: eBay Motors is here for the ride. With over 122 million parts for your number one ride or die, you can make sure your ride stays running smoothly brake kits led headlights bumpers whatever your baby needs ebay motors has it and with ebay guaranteed fit it's guaranteed to fit your ride the first time every time plus at these prices you're burning rubber not cash keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com eligible items only exclusions apply
0: I mean, what other figures, what other writers were uh, key in this process of deciding what fitted and what didn't? And how did that process work?
4: Well, it's interesting that you don't find um, much in the way of uh, committees or councils ruling on the content of the New Testament. Uh, and when you do, which isn't until the 4th century uh, AD, you find that what they rule on is what's already the case anyway. So um, I mean, there is the great Dan Brown theory, you know, which I'm bound to bring up, um, that there was a kind of conspiracy to suppress various works, and that in the fourth century the contents of the New Testament were decided for the first time. Now, in fact, the contents of the New Testament were getting fixed well early in the second century, Um, but nobody ruled on it. Nobody wrote documents or. Official letters saying these are the books of the New Testament. But if you look at what books people quote and cite, you find that it's more or less all the books that are now in the New Testament and not very many others. There are a few marginal cases, but on the whole, um, these are the books that people are quoting and using. And what happens in the fourth century is you get characters like Eusebius and Athanasius who actually. Write documents saying these are the scriptures of the New Testament, and they then list a completely unsurprising list of all the books we would have expected them to list anyway. And then they often say one or two of these are disputed. So, the third epistle of John, for example, a short text, and even the Revelation uh, are still a bit up for grabs at this stage. But the great bulk of Paul and the Gospels are, and, and Acts are fixed in the Christian imagination well before anybody actually starts to do any ruling about it.
0: Hmm. Why do you think those kind of damn Brown-esque theories continue to kind of have such a hold on the popular imagination?
4: Well people people love conspiracy theories uh, for one thing and for another of course it, it appears to debunk the Christian faith to say you know all your books were only decided on centuries after the time of Christ, Um, and uh, also he mixes it up by saying that the books that were suppressed were Gnostic texts, which is largely true, a particular sort of offshoot of Christianity which has a uh, a characteristic theology all of its own, Um, and he says that the Gnostic texts were much more favourable to women than the books in the New Testament are. So compare little snippets from occasional Gnostic texts that seem to be pro-women, like the Gospel of Mary Magdalene, with um, the occasional reference in St Paul, which seems to say that women should keep silent in the church and so on. And he builds this up into a theory that uh, Gnostics favoured human sexuality in the body, whereas Christians tried to suppress it. And this is all actually rather wild fantasy. I mean, there were such views. but They were a very small number of people who held them. And Gnostic texts in general are even more antibody than, than, than the New Testament books might, might be thought to be. So he, he's, he's being very, very selective. Um, but of course it appeals, because it appears to show that Christianity is nonsense. Mm-hmm. That, that's basically why people like it, I think.
0: Yeah. Um, what, what research, what sources did you draw on to write your, your book?
4: Um, well, uh, I didn't draw on any uh, original manuscript research. I drew on published works only, I'm afraid. That's <laughs> fine. <laughs> but uh, I had to look at uh, the enormous, I mean, there's an enormous body of literature on the Bible. Mm. Uh, both on its composition and origins and on how it's been interpreted down the ages. And uh, I had to delve into lots of stuff in libraries to get me up to speed. I mean, the the, the area I was less... I, I'm, I've mainly worked on the origins of the Bible, so when we got to how the Bible was interpreted in the Middle Ages and at the Reformation and so on, I was breaking, for me, rather new ground. I, I knew some general things about it, but I did have to do a lot of reading to get myself up to speed in terms of reading medieval texts and Luther and Calvin and so on, to try and uh, get myself orientated. So that was mm. where the, the bulk of the work, the, 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 the first part of the book in a way is not exactly off the top of my head, but almost, but the later parts did involve a great deal of original reading and thinking.
0: Mm. What's your take on that translation and that transmission?
4: Well, I mean, transmission and translation are two rather separate issues in a way. Um, I mean, of course, the Bible is translated in the Middle Ages in the West in Latin, uh, and very few people knew either Greek or Hebrew. Uh, And so the the Latin text is the one that people uh, work with. Um, And sometimes they insist on the exact wording of the Latin as though that was what the original Bible said rather than referring back to the the, the actual original texts. Um, but biblical translations continue to be extremely significant. Um, and at the Reformation, of course, it became a really big business with Luther's Bible and eventually the King James Version and the things that preceded it. And in fact, the, the next book I'm writing is on biblical translation and how what principles it involves. But as far as interpreting the text goes um what happens is a real divergence which i try to illustrate between jewish and christian interpretations and christian interpreters tend to see the whole bible as telling a kind of story running from creation to final fulfillment in the book of revelation so the whole thing is a is the story of the history of the world um and has a a forward-looking thrust looking to the second coming of christ for jewish readers the whole bible meaning what Christians call the Old Testament, the Hebrew Bible is seen primarily as instruction in how to live a good Jewish life, how to be an observant Jew. And the histories, though they're important, are read to give you examples of how to live and how not to live. Now Christians have done that too, but Christianity does have this forward-looking eschatological thrust to its reading for focused on on the future which isn't true on the whole of Judaism. I I sometimes illustrate this from the custom in the synagogue, where um, on the Sabbath, in synagogue liturgy, the whole Pentateuch, the whole five books of Moses, are read round the year in large sections. And there's a kind of lectionary which tells you which sections to read on which Sabbath. And there's one Sabbath in the year called Simchat Torah, the Rejoicing in the Law. When what is read is the last chapter of Deuteronomy, which is the last book of the books the last chapter of the book of Moses, and then immediately Genesis one, the first chapter, so that the Torah reading goes round in, in a kind of circle, uh, and the sense that the story continues through Joshua and the historical books is much weaker in Judaism than it is in Christianity. I think there's a difference of emphasis. But there's also a big difference, of course, in, in, in methods of interpretation, with Judaism characteristically interpreting passages of scripture by comparing them with other passages of scripture, where Christians, especially in the Middle Ages, often looked for heavenly meanings in the text. So they read the text, what it could tell us about
0: eternal life or
4: something like that. So big
0: you, I mean, you mentioned the King James Bible there, which is something that people will probably have heard of um, in terms of its historical uh, influence. How, how, how do you think we should maybe shift our understanding of that in terms of this context?
4: Well, one thing that's important to see is that the King James Bible is the end of a process, not uh, a thing in itself. But the translators in their preface say that they weren't thinking of making a new version of making a better version of all the existing versions and they depend very heavily on Tyndale's Bible from the previous century and on other versions of the Bible and it's important to remember that you know the Bible for Shakespeare for example was not the King James Bible but earlier Bibles Um, and people continue to read the Bible in Latin even after there were English versions so I want to sort of slightly relativize the King James Bible it's a great work But it is the culmination of a process, not something in itself, though brilliantly executed, of course. And then the other thing is that since the time of the King James Bible, there have been other versions. And most Christians today are probably, on the whole, more familiar with more modern versions, like the Revised Standard Version or the New Revised Standard Version, or the Jerusalem Bible, which is used a lot in Catholic churches um, particularly, which are reconceptions of how the bible should be translated so king james doesn't stand there just as a sort of solitary monolith it has a
0: background and it has a future Mm. and i suppose the fact that these different versions reflect the concerns and the emphases of the particular cultures and societies in which they were created too
4: yes there's some truth in that too of course that some of um, the choices of word to translate what's in the bible in king james and other versions does reflect what was going on at the time. Um, For example, um, in the versions that precede King James, there's a lot of disparity over whether you should use the word church for the Greek ecclesia. That's the normal translation nowadays. But some Protestants uh, affirm very strongly that you should use a word like gathering or meeting or something like that to avoid seeming to imply the Roman Catholic Church by using the word church and uh, King James's translators were specifically instructed to use the word church Um, but um, other translators tried to avoid it. Also terms for church officers like bishops and priests and deacons vary in different translations often in line with the beliefs of the people who produce the translation. Um, Bishop in Episcopos in the New Testament clearly means some kind of church leader, but it doesn't have all the baggage that goes with the connotations of the later word bishop in English. So there's a case for using word like overseer or guardian or governor or something like that. Uh, and, and that was contentious at the time and remains contentious now.
0: And I suppose all of this, the diversity, the different forms, the fact um, it's been changed over time, all point to the fact that we really shouldn't see this as some kind of, as you say, sacred monolith, but as, as this kind of diverse, this kind of almost uh, alive part of history, I suppose. Is, is that, that fair? That's
4: how I see it, that, that, that it's very much a live book, not a dead one. Um, and um, it's an enormous resource for both Jews and Christians. But it's not as the reformers, as um some Protestants in the past have said a kind of paper pope, uh, a, a text which delivers infallibly true utterances which you have to believe and follow. It's more complicated than that. You know, Had God wanted us to have a list of um, uh, operating instructions, he presumably could have given us one. But what we've got is a much more varied and variegated set of documents and we don't do justice to them if we try and reduce them to that one model.
0: Mm. What do you think this says, then, about Christian fundamentalism, both in the past and, I suppose, in uh, today, in the present day?
4: Well, I think, you know, fundamentalist Christians are often great Christians, and I, I, I don't want to knock them. But I, I don't think they're right in the sense that they think that the Bible is a kind of sacred monolith. That's my perception, anyway, of what they think. And any part of it can illuminate any other part. And you can go to it for your marching orders for the day, as it were, in a rather direct way. Although that's a rather an attractive idea in some ways, because it means you've got an infallible book you can always turn to. It doesn't do justice to the enormous variety and the length of composition, time and so on that lie behind this book. So I don't think fundamentalists are correct. Um, I don't think they're stupid, because they're very very often they're very sophisticated thinkers. And in fact, in order to try and show that the whole Bible is consistent, for example, you have to expand vast efforts of intellect uh, because it isn't consistent. <laughs> um, but I I continue to think it isn't, and that fundamentalism is wrong.
0: Mm. Um, how how then would you like um I suppose, secular people, non-secular people, to, to see the Bible, to view the Bible today?
4: Well, I'd like them to see it as, to start with, as, as very interesting, because I think what gets lost is people, the sacredness of it overpowers its interestingness. But people think it's a, a holy text, and because it's a holy text, it's not going to be interesting in the way that a secular text is. Now, in fact, there are bits of the Bible which most modern readers do find quite boring, like Leviticus, for example. But if you read my stock example, would be the two books of Samuel, you can read them almost as you would read a novel. Enormously interesting stories, very subtle and nuanced and, and un- unusual in their way, what they tell us about human nature. And um, I would just like people to, to find the Bible interesting. Whether they then go on to find The stories in it convincing in some way or they feel that they have to change their own religious beliefs because of it is is for me a secondary matter i'm i'm the the book was written to try and introduce the bible to um general cultured readers Um, i say cultured just because no one who reads a, a 600 and odd page book is you know a very simple reader But I would like such people to think this might be worth reading. And it's not an attempt to convert anybody to to Christianity or indeed Judaism, but um, just to try and show that this text is enormously rewarding to read. Once you've got into the idiom, which takes sometimes a bit of doing, because it is an ancient text, and like reading Homer, you can't do it without a little bit of help
3: and this book is an attempt to provide that help. That was John Barton. A History of the Bible, the book and its faiths is out now, published by Alan Lane. And as I mentioned before, it's been shortlisted for the Wolfson History Prize, the winner of which will be announced later this month. And that's all for today. Thanks for listening. This podcast was produced by Ben Ewart and Jack Bateman. Our next episode will be out tomorrow, when Elmer Brenner will be speaking about medicine in the Middle Ages in one of the virtual lectures recorded for our medieval Life and Death Day.